Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 22, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. And the show comes out every single Friday, downloadable from our website, theretrohour.com, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favourite podcast client. We're everywhere. And uh, we're doing pretty well at the moment, I've got to say. Oh yes, we have been nominated. Thank you guys for your support. We are now in the top 10 category of the world's best podcast for 2016. <laughs> the votes, actually, because we did say last week we only had about 90 votes since then we went up to like what was it in the end oh god i think it was around 300 and something yes. we, we, we basically got to around the fourth or fifth position okay which is amazing thank I, you and considering we're up there with people like milk the cow podcast and belgian smack yes then, uh, um, i've <laughs> never heard of these other ones but i guess this is the international one so you're yeah, gonna yeah. get the whole world's one but we've got some friends in there as we well have uh, retro asylum who are another great podcast did they win it last year uh, they won the UK one. Okay, yeah, yeah. But um, I think it was too late for the UK entries. We all we all came in too late. And uh, RGDS as well, Retro Gaming Discussion Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, Retro Domination, I don't know if you know about them. They are Australian. Okay, cool. An Oz-based podcast. Down Under, mate. Down Under, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, it's always nice. I mean, you're looking at the, uh, you know, the list here of the, the top 10 podcasts that are nominated. It's great to see, like, you know, three retro gaming podcasts in there. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's obviously a demand. Absolutely. Know? And, uh, you know, if you haven't heard about these shows before, um, highly recommend that you check them out. Retro Asylum, Retro Domination, RGDS, and, uh, of course, the Retro Hour, which uh, you probably know because you're listening to it right now. Yeah, and <laughs> you can help us still further on in the awards, which is now it's moved on to Twitter, guys. So okay. we're, we're off Facebook, and if you're not good on Twitter, then just ignore this. You can put I nominate our name at Retro Hour UK for the World's Best Podcast Awards 2016. And that will count as a nomination and it will help towards the vote. I think it's now a group of judges right. and votes that okay. count. So. Well, we'll put all this information in the show notes at theretrohour.com. But if you get a minute and you're on Twitter, then uh, that will be awesome. You know, We can go all suited and booted to yeah. the awards, too. And uh, who do we have as a guest this week, though? Well, I think uh, we've got a rather, rather famous pair on the show this week, Ravi. Yeah, uh, we've, got, we've got two guys, and they are the Oliver Twins. Dizzy. Dizzy, Super Robin Hood. Lots of Amstrad stuff, yeah. early PlayStation. Well, it's quite interesting because the Amstrad CPC was obviously a massive platform um, here in the UK. And we haven't really covered it a lot on the show before. Um, but the Oliver Twins, they were like, you know, these guys actually made a conscious decision to support the Amstrad CPC in its early days. They were the, they were the British gaming brothers, weren't they? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, and also we'll hear their early stories about how they backed the PlayStation originally and everyone said, oh, that's never going to take off. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that'd be quite cool. I mean, they are, like you said, British gaming legends. Even Dizzy, it's a franchise that's known around the world as you know totally a famous british and gaming. i think they got the competitive edge being brothers yeah <laughs> you know they could feed off each other's energy absolutely so uh, looking forward to this one the oliver twins on the retro hour in around 20 minutes from now and let's get into this week's news stories then now uh, monkey island was one of my all-time favorite games um i'd save any genre monkey island fantastic game just the atmosphere oh god so good what a classic and um obviously it was lucas arts wasn't it who Made those games back in the old days. Yeah, yeah, they uh, got bought out by Disney recently, didn't they? Four billion dollars they paid for it. It's worth it. (laughs) Yeah, to be fair, they had some amazing franchises, including Monkey Island. Now, Ron Gilbert was the guy, obviously, originally behind the first couple of Monkey Island games and Maniac Mansion. He's actually sent a tweet this week going, Dear Disney, now that you're not making games anymore, please sell me my Monkey Island and Maniac Mansion IPs back. 
I will pay real actual money for them. Mm. So essentially, he's offering to pay whatever Disney wants so he can have these franchises back. Now, the question is, why does he want them back? What's he, <laughs> well, what does he want to do with them? That's a... Well, obviously, you know, if he's got money to pay for them, you'd think, obviously, he wants to use these franchises again, which um, I think is the exciting part of this story. Now, this has been retweeted 5,783 times at the moment. So, uh, you know, the fans are getting behind this. But, you know, I used to love the original Monkey Island games. One and two were probably my favourite point-and-click adventures of all time. And the later games came along, obviously, kind of got the the 3D ones, you know, the the CD-ROM games that came out, Curse and uh, Escape of Monkey Island, all that kind of thing. Never quite the same, but I think it's because, you know, Ron Gilbert, he was at the heart and soul of the original games. He he came up with the characters. And when you take that away, it kind of loses something... Of it, I think. Yeah, and that, I think that's the case with a lot of these people wanting to do remakes or, mm-hmm. or HD versions of their old games. You know, a lot of the times these companies have sold off the rights to games to all over the place. So yeah. the original author has to try and track it down. So it would be good to see it back in his hands. I mean, there was a little series that came out. There was the Tales of Monkey Island that came out about four or five years ago. There were like a few mini games that came out. I don't think Ron had any involvement in that at all. Um, as far as I know. But, um, yeah, I mean, I played through a couple of those, but they didn't really have quite the... the Well, maybe uh, with the Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, Disney would maybe integrate Monkey Island into something like that. They might have their own plans, you know. Well, I've always thought that. It must be based on that. Yeah, that's what everybody... Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely must be based on that. But, I mean, it would be awesome just to see maybe like a fully animated Monkey Island movie. Well, that's one of their biggest franchises, isn't it? Pirates of the Caribbean. They have the rides of that as well, so... Mm -hmm. Might slot in well, you never know. Or on the on the flip side, Disney might be like, no, it's too similar to Pirates. Yeah, we want to bury that now. Yeah. So uh, more than likely that one. But <laughs> yeah, what a, an amazing thing it would be that to see a new uh, Ron Gilbert Monkey Island game coming Excellent. out. Excellent. Come on, Disney. Yeah, sort it out, <laughs> Disney. So uh, yeah, give that little retweet if you are on Twitter. I'm sure Ron will appreciate that. Now, uh, the Neo Geo is a system that um, I've always drooled over since yeah. I was a kid. I've I've never really played on one. I've kind of had a little fiddle, but I've never had a, a, a good <laughs> time sitting down with one and, you know. Get old Dominic Diamond on us today. <laughs> um, but we did actually play with one at the um, replay show a couple of years ago. Oh, we? yeah, yeah, we had a, a little blast, but we, it wasn't. We did. Um, but yeah, it was always too expensive. And even now, collecting for the Neo Geo, the prices are extortionate for them, aren't they? They're crazy, which uh, makes me think this guy might be slightly crazy. But um, according to Motherboard on Vice, there's mm-hmm. a guy, Brian Hargrove, and Hargrove, sorry, and he's uh, obsessive with the Neo Geo. So what he does is he has uh, an algorithm or a, a bidding service which basically bids on anything that comes up with Neo Geo on right. eBay. Anything, any obscure item, anything strange. A bell rings in his room when something comes yeah, up. Yeah, <laughs> ding, 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 go. And uh, he he's looked at this thing that kind of looked like a development piece of hardware. So, you know, naturally, you just spend $750 on it, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely nuts. Plugs it in, and it's a whole game. Wow. That had not been released for the Neo Geo that no one knew about. And looking at this, it's a fighting game, and it actually looks quite like Street Fighter. Yeah. The graphics that we can see here, and there's only a couple of little screenshots of like the uh, the character select screen and stuff like that. And uh, what's interesting about this as well is, apparently you bought this off uh, Japan's biggest auction website, which is Yahoo Auctions. (laughs) And uh, basically got them on EEPROMs that came and he had to take them off and then kind of, you know, copy the EEPROMs because he didn't want to damage the original carts and uh, and then kind of boot it off that. But, you know, he didn't know what was on these. That's crazy, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, it is like a fantasy theme, a fantasy theme fighting game. And there's actually um, a little video of him demoing it at a, uh, a classic gaming convention, which is really cool. 
So, and of course, it's got really good arcade graphics because it's Neo Geo. Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, maybe this crazy speculative collecting <laughs> could lead to something. Well, it's, it's just awesome finding that, isn't it? I mean, you probably fair to say this guy's got the only copy in the world of that. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, like, that's it. It's ultra rare because he only knows about it. <laughs> and hopefully he'll dump the ROMs so everyone can have a go. Yeah. So uh, we'll keep you posted on that one. Now, this is quite an interesting topic that I saw pop up on Reddit. Are car boot sales worth it? I would say for me, as an Amiga collector, mm-hmm. 10 years ago they were. 15 years ago they were amazing. Yeah. <laughs> now, no. It's just old Xboxes everywhere, wherever <laughs> I go. Well, yeah, there's a post for, from a guy who's not far from us, actually. I'm currently in the Derbyshire area, he says. He wants to check out um, a few car boot sales around the East Midlands. Um, however, I've not really heard much good news from others. Uh, flea markets in the States seem a more viable option, but have you scored any good stuff from, uh, from car boot sales? So... I've not been to a load of car boot sales, but my missus is always like, you know, I always see computer stuff there. So I went to a couple. I've probably been to about four or five over the last, like, five years since I've been here. I think the oldest system I saw was a Sega Master System that was in a puddle. (laughs) (laughs) That's a big problem with British car boot sales is rain. Because yeah. I have, I've gone to one and I saw a beautiful soap, super scope, you know, for oh, the yeah, uh, yeah. snares, yeah. all packaged, original and everything. Come back half an hour later, the guys just left it out and wrecked it. Yeah. And it's like not even worth buying. But the main systems I found at car boot sales, because I usually go every Saturday. Okay. And uh, this would be, you know, seven in the morning. So Got to get there early. Yeah, because the other collectors had come out. But, um, the only stuff I kind of get would be like a Dreamcast for £2 with mm-hmm. no cables where the guy's like, that's not working. Because he's Play lost it. the wire. <laughs> well, that's it. There's no mm. way of testing if any of these machines work at a car boot sale as well. There's no PowerPoint. You don't have a screen that you can plug it into. So you're basically just buying this in the hope that something might power yeah, up. It's not like you know? eBay, you can't return it. You know, yeah, the guy might not be there no. next weekend. But um, well, there's a guy here on this Reddit um, thread here. He says, I used to go to car boot sales about 10 years ago, like you said. Um, he found a mint condition Panasonic 3DO for a tenner. A lot of good Mega Drive games, including Shining Force and Castlevania for a pound each. Yeah. He says, however you go now, and uh, everyone tries to sell them for eBay prices. Totally, totally. I went actually recently past, and there was... Um an Asian family, and they had a, a Mega Drive 1, and it had been kept in beautiful condition, like the box and everything, but they knew the value. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they checked on eBay, and it was out there in the front, and I was like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. I want, like, a Amiga PPC card for seven quid or yeah. something. You know? <laughs> See, I do read stuff like that on forums, like if people are like, yeah, you know, I bought, like, an Amiga 4000 for a pound and stuff like that, but I've been to a few car boot sales. All I ever see is, like, you know, maybe a PlayStation 2, and it's always like old copies of FIFA for the Xbox totally. or the and PS3. If, if we're in England as well, where mm. car boot sales are massively popular and Amiga was, and we can't find them, yeah. then, you know, guys in America and other places, you must be really screwed. Someone else in here makes a really good point that a lot of them are going home with this stuff because they're trying to charge like 70 quid for a Mega Drive. You put it on eBay, you're listing it out to the whole of Europe. You know yeah, what I mean? They might yeah. be interested and can bid against each other. When you're doing a little car boot sale on like, you know, Collet Park or whatever, it's like yeah, not quite the same, is it? So, uh, yeah, honestly, I wouldn't waste the effort of getting up at seven in the morning to go to car boot sales. I, I think it's stuff. trends of things as well, though. So if you went, say, five years ago and you went to get typewriters... You'd be getting them for two, three, four pounds, mm-hmm. just old battered typewriters. Now the hipsters, yeah. typewriter trend, you know, they're <laughs> going to be going up to 40, 50 quid. <laughs> Sitting Starbucks with it. Yeah. <laughs> actually leads on quite nicely to a story we'll talk about in just a moment. Oh. Uh, before that, though, our first ever guest on the Retro Hour was uh, quite a famous Amiga musician. Yeah, Alistair Brimble, one of my favourite 
He is. What an absolute legend. Lovely bloke as well. Yeah. When did we first meet Alistair? It was at the Amiga 13 Amsterdam? Yeah, we, I think we met him at the airport. or We met him before and then we had a good time at the airport eating paninis. Yeah. And then, <laughs> <laughs> she had a bit of pasta with him. Yeah. yeah Very yeah. nice guy. Um, obviously responsible for some amazing Amiga music. Like, you know, he did Mortal Kombat music on the Amiga, didn't he? Yeah. Super Frog. Super Frog Assassin, you know, he's Alien done Breed. Uh, Alien Bridger. It's a really cool guy that we've chatted to a fair bit online, uh, Paul Bridger, who's actually done a documentary all about Alistair Brimble. And it's free to watch online as well, guys. So. It is, so we thought we'd get Paul on just for a quick chat about um, the documentary. How are you doing, Paul? I'm fine, really uh, good. We really don't want to get you on because, um, now, Alistair Brimble is an Amiga musician who's uh, obviously responsible for some amazing Amiga music, but also very close to our hearts as well because he was the first guest that we ever had in this podcast. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, I knew that you guys were doing the podcast, and uh, I jumped onto that first episode, and uh, it was a, it was a fantastic uh, episode, uh, as is all the, all the episodes. Uh, oh. Keep up the work, keep up with the great work, guys. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I did listen to the first episode um, because I've been working quite closely with Alistair, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it was it it was it was great to get some insight and you know um, find out a bit more, a little bit more with what he was doing and the questions that you were probing for. So yeah, all good stuff. You were uh, one of his first fans, weren't you? To meet yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, stalker. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I was. I mean, I, I purely because it came back down to you know all the games that I used to play, with, you know, back on the the Amiga days and stuff, and I still do. But um, yeah, it, it, I mean, I f- fell in love with his music, and you know, as soon as I was going through all the magazines and stuff, and I saw the advertisement, I was like, I've got to get that, I've got to get that cassette tape, and. Um, sent off for it and I, yeah I was one of the first ones to get it uh, the same with the Sounds digital album as well and the Bang Tick Tick album I was the first one to, to get these albums um, from the day of release uh, and just love his music I love his work he, he, he you know he's he can you know change you know his uh, genre to, 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 to fit any kind of game really well, I was going to ask you then, actually, what what's so special about Alistair Brimble's music? When you when you go through the, the games that he's he's worked on in terms of you know um, sort of like the early nineties, so if you go from sort of Alien Breed, very dark, atmospheric, moody, and then you go to something like um, you know Body Blows, and then something like Super Frog, and and it, it's the transition. I think it was the transition that really got to me because them samples and all that work he was putting into it was just something else. It was on a, it was on a different level for me. Well, um, you were involved in the Amiga Works Kickstarter. Yeah, uh, I um, managed to get the executive producer credit um, f- for that. Um, backed the project myself because um, I wanted I wanted this to be a success, and you know, spread it around like wildfire on social media and everything else. And um, yeah, literally got on board of Alistair. Um, I had some time off work, and I and I said to him, "Look, you know, I'd love to do this for you." And that was literally um, starting his um, his website up, um, and I, I created all the website, the design for it. Uh, but then I started going into more depth with it. So I, you know, I was like, "What else can I add to this?" And uh, started uh, getting in contact with a few uh, legends, you know, um, through through the gaming community, and um, started getting testimonials and started adding them in. Um, but you know, I set everything up from the shopping cart um, because my main background is marketing mm-hmm. as well. Um, I managed to get a full uh, track, which was Assassin, the main title, played on commercial radio as well, oh, wow. um, which very rarely happens these days. To be to be fair, 
Absolutely. Well, I mean, they, they always say you should never meet your heroes, but Alistair is such a nice guy as well. I mean, do you remember when you first like started speaking to him and uh, when you met him first time? Yeah, I mean, I've spoken to him briefly online and stuff like that, but I mean, my, my opportunity was literally to get him, uh, to, to meet him at Omega 30 UK um, because we're literally on, you know, very far from each other. You know, I'm up in, I'm up in Newcastle. He's all the way down the south coast and um, there was just no way, you know, we could really get together. And um, yeah, I think Amiga 30 UK was fantastic and you know we got the to, to, to meet up and I think as soon as we met up for the first time it was just um, we had that connection straight away Well um, the Amiga Works has actually grown from just a Kickstarter project where he remade his tunes mm. into something that we can all watch on YouTube at the moment Yeah um, I think it's you know, for me, I, I think the first thing that it's inspired me to actually do something uh, more, more so than being involved with the album, and well, not so much as, as the album per se, but obviously with the the Kickstarter project uh, and getting the website up and running and stuff like that, was I saw Chris Hulsbeck's uh, Turrican Anthology, <laughs> and um, that did very well. And then I saw a trailer for for that on YouTube, and I thought that you know it looked really good and. It gave me a bit more sort of inspiration behind it. And I thought I-, I could do something about this, and you know, knowing my history and my experience through with um, video, I just I just thought myself, you know, let's try it. And it, it started off really, to be fair, um, is is a kind of a mini trailer to the actual album, and it just spiraled out of control. <laughs> it just went wildfire, and I think it was because you know I was getting so much testimonials and feedback and, and some really good support, but. That support has really taken quite a bit of time. So you're talking two years in the making, really. We kind of were amazed when we watched it because you had so many really good guests, you know, um, mm. proper prominent musicians like Chris Holsbeck and you yeah. know, many others. It's it's really good film. Chris Holsbeck was probably one of the last ones that we that I managed to get onto that project. And... Um, He's a, he's a hard man to reach. <laughs> I had a laugh because he actually turned around and said, you know, Paul, he says, I admire your persistence, you know, I'm going to do this for you. <laughs> and uh, it paid off, it paid off. But, you know, there's other guys that were willing to, to bend over backwards and help me. I mean, the Oliver Twins, those guys were fantastic. They, they, they set up a, a green screen for me and I just, I just did all the tinkering behind the background, you know, and uh, and that was it. And uh, Ravi and I are in it as well, but don't let that put you off if uh, you're thinking of checking out this documentary. <laughs> <laughs> well, the the one that has been released on YouTube is literally the cut-down version. There is an extended version, which I am going to spread um, at some point um, because it has got some additional bits in there, which I think that the fans will like. Um, so I am releasing an extended version, and there's also going to be an alternative version for another project as a perk, possibly later on the year. So watch a space. Excellent, Paul. So if people want to check it out, if you haven't seen it yet, where do they go? Um, so at the moment, it is literally on YouTube. You know, just search for Amiga Works, um, Alistair Brimble, you know, um, and you'll literally find it. Um, it's just as quick as that. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've got the official Amiga Works Facebook page as well. Uh, we've got updates and, and all sorts on there as well. So, you know, catch her out on there as well. And we'll share the links in the show notes at theretrohour.com. Yeah. Paul, been lovely talking to you. Yeah, and you, you as well. And keep up the great work. It's been fantastic. Uh, listen to all the episodes. Now, a moment ago, we were talking about car boot sales and eBay stuff. Um, you mentioned typewriters. This has got to be up there in the most bizarre eBay finds that I've ever seen. A secret German World War II code machine has been found on eBay. Thank you for Byron Hawkins for submitting this news to us. And... This is crazy. We were talking about the Enigma machine the other day. At Bletchley Park, yeah. At Bletchley Park, yeah. And this is uh, 
a ciphering machine as well that Hitler used to communicate with his personal high command. Right. Now, this appeared on eBay for £9.50, and uh, it, it seemed to be labelled as a teleprinter. Yeah, so the guys at Bletchley were like, what the hell is this? <laughs> amazing. So they went to the guy's house and gave him a tenner for it. Yeah. Went into a shed, and in the corner, covered in dirt and everything, was this machine. And it's supposed to be more complicated than the Enigma, and more important. No way. Well, looking at this, it does look like, you know, a very advanced typewriter. Actually looks a bit like a, like a roll of, like, till receipt or something on the side of it. That yeah, because, it, you know, it, yeah. it's a ciphering machine, mm-hmm. so all the little wheels and cogs turn yeah. to create this uh, code. That yeah. is absolutely crazy, isn't it? Just for that to show up <laughs> for, like, less than a tenner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did they actually tell the guy what it is, I wonder, then? I'm not sure, but maybe they said come and see it in the museum yeah. <laughs> afterwards, you know. But it's gone to the right people. I'm very glad that Bletchley got this and uh, somebody didn't get it and tried to make money from it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Well, um, apparently they had like their team of experts working on it. They've restored it now to work in order and Excellent. stuff. So, Good uh, stuff. Thanks everyone in Bletchley Park. There's a rare bit of history that you can look at that turn up in the most unlikely places. <laughs> <laughs> Now, before we get to the Oliver Twins, um, I was just watching this really cool video. Now, it was posted a couple of years ago, but it's actually Sega introducing the world's first hologram game, Time Traveller, back in the year 1991. And I got a proper nostalgic blast from the past watching this. I was like, oh my God, I remember playing that. You know, there are certain games that like really made an influence on you then you just completely forget about. Yeah. Uh, this was a game that came out. It, it, I do re- recall this game was, it's obviously pure novelty. It had like a few little bits of sponge in the background. And then it's like kind of projected a hologram image into the middle of this kind of um, yeah, it's like it's like kind of back projected onto this weird dome, and then uh, it's it's like you know when you had early CD-ROM games and they just shoved video of people in because the CGI (laughs) was so bad you'd kind of have a digitized person. Well, that's what it's like. It's FMV game, and I've watched this video and the even like as you know an eight, nine, ten-year-old kid, whatever it was when it came out, I always recall the spe- you know, the acting being shocking back then and thinking, God, they can't act to save their life. <laughs> yeah. But for some reason, it brought back a weird memory of, like, near me when I was a kid, we used to have a fair that visited every year. And this game was in there, which, you know, it must have been state-of-the-art at the time. Well, I'm just looking at the development video here, and uh, there's kind of the green screen on the back they've just painted on the wall. Yeah. So it must be really early kind of chroma key. Well, 1991 it came out, yeah. And, you know, I imagine these were probably pretty expensive. But if you've never played the game before, it's essentially kind of like, like you said, there's early FMV games, like, you know, Mad Dog McCree. Do you remember that? And it is another cowboy kind of shooter thing. But what I remember about this, watching this video is, if you, like, shoot and you miss or you die, it just kind of restarts that bit of the scene again. So literally the cowboy was walk in, miss, walk out, walk in, miss. You'll do it about 20 times. Oh, was it just like a trigger? Yeah. A trigger event? Kind it's, of yeah, game. It's yeah. on, it is just like that. You get certain bits of the game where you've got to press buttons and stuff. But, yeah, just looking at that, I mean, it's certain games that, you know, at the time I remember putting my hand through the character and thinking, oh, my God, this is amazing. All games are going to be like this one day. Yeah. And obviously, I think they made a sequel, but that was never really seen anywhere. But saying about them, they did some really cool stuff. I also remember one called the um, the R360. That was kind of like a, like a flight sim kind of game. You'd sit inside it. And it was actually mechanical. It was like a ride, and you'd spin around backwards and everything. And like, a, where was this that you saw? It's at the seaside. I, I saw that, but it, I think it was about three pound fifty to go on, <laughs> like Scarborough <laughs> or something. So, yeah. but Sega did some pretty cutting edge stuff back in the day. Yeah, that's crazy. Like, so, 
All I remember was Silent Scope. <laughs> that was, uh, yeah. But, I mean, yeah, the arcades are always like, you know, where Sega like, really, really excelled back in the old days, I think. so. Totally, that was it, the arcade realism. Worth a look, it's just an interesting bit of gaming history. We'll pop a link to this video in the show notes at theretrohour.com. And thank you for checking out episode number 22. Of course, do keep your votes coming in on Twitter. Yeah, we need your votes, and uh, hopefully we'll win. And uh, you can check out the show every single Friday, of course. We'll be back next week. You can download it every week from theretrohour.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, YouTube, all your favourite places. And for the next 40 minutes or so on the Retro Hour, I've been looking forward to this one. We have the absolute legendary Oliver Brothers. My childhood heroes, Dizzy, we love you. Let's talk Dizzy. (laughs) And we'll see you next Friday. See you next Friday. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it's our pleasure to welcome to this week's show two absolutely legendary British game developers, Philip and Andrew Oliver, the Oliver Twins. So we'll start right at the beginning, guys. What first got you into computers? Um, hi, Dan and um, Ravi. Uh, so, Philip here. Our first computer experience, I guess, was um, back in the uh, 79, 80 era um, space Invaders, really, wasn't it? Yeah, Space Invaders in a local supermarket. Um, that colour game where they where they managed to get colour by sticking coloured cellophane on the screen of a black and white <laughs> oh, <yeah>. game. <laughs> we, were, we were just mesmerised by the fact that you could sort of control things on the TV because up to then, we just had a couple of channels on, on the telly and we don't read books and stuff. So we literally got sort of really bored and used to play board games because we were that bored. Um, <laughs> and the idea that you could actually have competitions and, and gameplay on a TV, we, we were just mesmerised. We were about 11, 12, something like that. And this just opened up our world to something that was truly incredible. Well, you guys were obviously there, you know, in the, the first UK microcomputer boom um, of the early 80s. So what was it like kind of growing up in that era? Isolated in some ways. I mean, the point to us that you didn't really know anybody else that was kind of into it. Um, occasionally, you'd find somebody. Well, at there school were geeky, who, geeky friends. Yeah, there it, was a few geeky friends who kind of we liked technology, and we all thought, "Hey, this is really kind of cool stuff." Yeah, I mean, the best the best one was um, a friend of ours, Ivan. His dad had an Apple IIe that he'd really got because he was kind of um, a science teacher. But actually, the games on that were cracking. So they had Zork and uh, uh, Night Mission and Taxman and things like that. And so we used to go around his house all the time playing on his dad's Apple IIe. So how did you guys end up saving up or getting your first machine? Well, the, the first machine was a funny story. It was actually our brother, our older brother's machine. Um, he decided, he's, um, what, seven years older than us, and he decided that with his sort of... Just, he just got a job. He just got a job. He got some money, so he thought he'd buy a computer. So he actually bought a ZX81, but it was second-hand. Um, and I, I remember sort of going around the guy guy's house sort of with Martin to buy it. And Martin sort of said, well, why are you selling this computer second-hand? Because it's so new, because it had yeah. only been out a few months. And it's yeah. like, oh, yeah, why, why would he? Why would he sell it second-hand? This is amazing. He goes, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to buy myself um, a different computer, a BBC Micro Model A. I was just there thinking, well, this is really dumb. The like, computer's a computer. Computer's a computer. It's like, what are you doing? It's like, this is really dumb. Of course, we, we quickly discovered um, that a computer is not, then not all computers are equal. <laughs> um, <laughs> And when he got it home and put it under the TV, he was busy with girlfriends and work and everything else. So he 
kind of left it under the family TV. And we uh, just played around with it because yeah. we were bored. And uh, there's a few typing listings because it used to come with manuals, and there were times where you'd actually read the manual because you go, well, it doesn't do anything. So open up the manual, and there'll be little 10 line listings. You type it in and go, oh, that's quite interesting. And if you try line 11, you run out of memory because it only had 1K. <laughs> yeah, and but, typing yeah. on that lovely chiclet <laughs> keyboard as well. Yeah, I mean, it typically... paper keyboard is rubbish. <laughs> I mean, li- literally, it would have this sort of 10 uh, hello world, 20 go to 10, and then the next one might be like or, or a few pages in, would be like getting a little tiny cursor to just bounce around the screen. And it was just kind of fascinating to us, like how it worked. And it was magical just being able to control the, the image on the TV. I mean, everybody kind of takes it for granted now, but back in those days, you really only had broadcast TV, and the, the TV did just what the channel was kind of showing. And so to actually be able to sort of control it and put letters on the screen and sort of type 10, hello world, 20, go to 10 and go, hey, look, I could get it to print hello world a million times. <laughs> Agreed. But, but, the, but the, good, the good stuff happened when we actually upgraded. So in August of 82, we saved up, we did a paper round and saved up and bought a Dragon 32. Ooh. Now this had 32K of memory, a proper keyboard, colour graphics. Operating system by Microsoft. It did. Um, yeah. Even though it was made by Mattel. Uh, it was actually really, really similar to a Tandy machine. I, I think uh, Tandys were very popular in America and it's actually really similar, we discovered. But it was kind of good and bad in the fact that it was good for all the things that we just said and the language was basic, but it had sprite commands and little turtle language, so you could like program like a spirograph patterns and things really, really simply. But it was bad in the fact it had no games because it wasn't a very popular machine. <laughs> because it was so damn obscure, nobody wrote games for it. But actually, looking back on it, whilst we felt that we probably bought the wrong computer because we couldn't get any games, we had to make our own, and that actually helped us that we spent our time just saying, well, there's no games out there, or the few that we found were so bad that we could almost write that ourselves. Well, I was going to say, because I also grew up with quite an obscure machine as my first computer. I had a Commodore Plus 4. That was my first machine. So Ooh, I, that is obscure. I can relate to you guys, you know, the lack of software and stuff like that. But um, was there any other machines that you kind of looked at at the time and lusted over and thought, you know, I wish we had one of those? We had the choice. When, when our older brother had this um, ZX81 and we, we'd put all our time and effort into this and we decided we wanted a proper computer now that we understood why you needed a better one. So there was the model... Uh, BBC Model the, B. The, the BBC Model B was being talked about. There was obviously the Vic. 20 and then the Commodore 64 and there was the Spectrum so we actually had the choice at the point of buying that Dragon we had the choice of a Spectrum just being released I think it would have been 16k which would have kind of but it looked like it. a nasty keyboard but but we yeah we just kind of yeah it didn't look much better than the ZX81 and mm. 16k in memory so 32k beat it on the Dragon um, the BBC was just a ridiculous price well it I was mean, 400 pounds which was would in today's money be well over a thousand mm. um, um, which in dollars, we're, we're talking more. almost $2,000 or something. Yeah. It's crazy so, money. It was crazy money. Um, and the way in which they managed to sell it was because they got it into all the schools yeah. as the sort of main research teaching machine. So it must have been expensive. I don't know whether they got subsidized. But the fact is the rich kids' parents would be sort of sold the idea, this isn't for games. This is for your homework. This is, this is what they teach in the schools now. This is going to be the standard. And there was even a BBC program supporting 
supporting it. So on TV, there was uh, they were teaching you how to program the computer, which was incredible. We look back on it. I mean, you can find the clips on YouTube. They're hilarious. It, um, it, it was the the best machine, but also ridiculously expensive. So so that was out of the league. Um, Vic Vic Twenty uh, weren't really keen on the style of it. It just didn't look very nice. Um, yeah, and so we weren't that taken with with. Or the, or the C64. In fact, the C64, we actually thought, mistakenly, but this is because quite young, naive kids, we thought they'd just put some more memory in the VIC-20 and change the color uh, <laughs> right. of the plastic. Because that's the way it was marketed. That's what it appeared to be. Um, they, they basically didn't kind of promote the fact that this is actually a much more advanced machine. So how did this lead to you guys start programming? Were you learning from books or the television or other places? It was, um, the manuals themselves and the, the magazines. There was quite a fascinating hobby uh, thing going on at the time where they wanted to do computer magazines and the computer magazines would review the games that come out came out on any format but there weren't that many games coming out so it would be adverts reviews of games and what do we fill the rest of the magazine with and they just went down the line of type, know, type in listings type in listings and it was very common that every magazine would always have sort of a few type in listings and so we would diligently sort of you, you'd read your magazine from because the cover, cover. Cover, <laughs> cover you've got a month and this is the magazine that you've got so you type in every listing there and you spend your time sort of trying to understand it well, understand it to fix it because when you type it in you always have all the syntax errors so we we learned it all through that now that's basic but it does teach you all the fundamentals of programming so we understood how it all worked um obviously it took a little bit of a, a leap to go into assembler but we were a year or two in we won a national competition and i oh know slightly wrong order, but we got we did get a bbc micro eventually uh, eventually and the BBC was wonderful in the fact that in BASIC, you could write Assembler and BASIC alongside each other, mm -hmm. which was just genius. And so, obviously, every time we tried to write something and it was a bit slow, you tried to work out how to write it in Assembler. Um, and in the manual, it explained how to do this. Yeah, the, fir the first bit of Assembler we actually wanted to do was that we couldn't get any decent graphics. We wanted to create little games, but we needed to create the graphics of the, like, the little Pac-Man sprites and stuff like that. But we couldn't actually draw the graphics on the screen in any way. So we, we needed an art package. So we decided to write ourselves an art package. Well, everyone did it on graph paper. <laughs> yeah, everybody sort of did graph papers and tried to work out hex codes from graph paper. But we thought, no, 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 let's, let's work out a little pro program which kind of can draw, draw um, pictures. We can draw the pictures using all the tools. Well, I know after the BBC, I know you guys um, quite, had quite a bit of a, an affinity for the Amstrad machines. Is that right? Well, yeah. So what actually happened and why we went to the Amstrad was that we were writing games and starting to get quite good at writing games on the BBC. But nobody wanted to publish them and give us money for them. So we thought, well, these are really good quality games. Why, why won't anybody give us any money for them and publish them? Because that was kind of the next challenge was to get them all published. Um, but actually what happened was that the BBC was such an expensive machine um, and mostly owned by schools that not a lot of people were buying games, which means all the publishers had pulled out of publishing on the, them. The, there was a, the interesting thing. So Acornsoft was pretty much the main publisher and the only publisher. And they just had a series of arcade games which were exact rip-offs. I mean, this is funny because none of them were licensed of all the classic arcade Defender games. and Scramble and Pac-Man and Mystery. Yeah, so they just copied everything. <laughs> and then they had a couple of unbelievable classics like Elite and Rebs and uh, 
Aviator, Aviator and Sentinel. And they were just like, oh, my God, that whole 3D thing. It was just like, we just didn't get that at all. It was like, that was just mind-blowing. So we were like, well, we can't compete with them. Um, and nobody really wants to publish our games anyway. So, but we felt that we'd be able to write the quality of games that were on the spectrum. But there's all the spectrum had been out by a couple of years by now, and we thought and it was quite a flooded market. And yeah, and we thought, well, we don't really compete, and we don't really want to go backwards because it felt like a backward step going from a BBC Micro B to a tiny little uh, spectrum with a horrible keyboard. But we did oh, those rubber keys. <laughs> yeah, so, um, the, but then Amstrad had Lord, already... Lord, um, <laughs> Lord Nash. Yeah, Lord, Lord Alan Sugar um, <laughs> bought out the Amstrad machine, um, and we thought, that looks pretty cool. And the thing that really was interesting is the fact that it had a disk drive. Um, so this is the second Amstrad machine. The first one was just a cassette, and that was... That was okay, and we'd kind of seen that, and that was quite a popular machine, and it was coming on well. But then we heard they were releasing the disk drive version, and we thought, ah, oh, that's great, we're in. There aren't too many games. Um, people, w- the game, the machine's quite successful. Um, we think with a disk drive, it'll be even more successful. Uh, we don't have to, so we think that that will be a really good games machine. Well, I heard you guys even use the uh, Amstrad to code specy games to avoid using that rubber keyboard. Is that correct? Yeah, this yeah. is absolutely what happened. So what <laughs> what actually happened was we wrote. Um, so we'd written a few games on the Amstrad and we'd got paid okay. They didn't go particularly well. We then had our big breakout hit, which was Super Robin Hood on the Amstrad, when we met the Darlings, um, Codemasters. And that went straight to number one. It was hugely successful. We did it in a month, the whole game and stuff. And we were like, man, this is good. But then um, we were writing, we started writing the next game and Codemasters hired somebody else to write the... To convert it. To convert Super Robin Hood to Spectrum. And they seemed to be really slow and asking loads of questions and stuff. And we started into Ghost Hunters and um, David Darling just sent us a spectrum in the post and said, why don't you do it yourself, guys? And we're like, yeah, it's kind of Z80 based. And so this machine had just turned up and we're like, maybe, but we don't really want to type on it and it doesn't have a disk drive. So maybe if we could just cable it to the back of the Amstrad, when then we can write the game on the Amstrad, and then we'll just push it, a ROM image, effectively, down the cable, and the thing will work. At the time, it was a bit of a pipe dream, and a bit of a kind of nobody really knew about this stuff, and it was just a, an idea. And by complete coincidence, we were talking to an electronics guy who was at Bath University about this, um, and he said, oh, well, yeah, yeah, that'll work, yeah, yeah not a problem. I string can, computers together. I, I can do that for you, yeah, I'll, I'll knock up a little board, little sort of breadboard, sort of soldered wires on and everything, I'll do that for you. We're like, really? That's very nice of you, thank you. So anyway, he knocked us up this one board, his name was David Jones, um, but he's not the David Jones behind Lemmings. Uh, <laughs> there are too many David Joneses in this world. Um, he knocked up that one board and basically we were able to connect the back of the Amstrad straight to the back of the Spectrum. We were able to compile using Maxam and the Amstrad and the disk drive and just spit down a ROM image onto the Spectrum um, and then just test it. Which actually was genius because, uh, apart from the fact we didn't have to type on the horrible keyboard. Um, or, or use a cassette recorder. If, if, it ever, <laughs> if it ever crashed or anything, you were still looking at the listing on your TV for, for the Am- you all on, had, on the Amstrad. On the Amstrad, you still had the code and everything was running, so your Spectrum just crashed, so you just sort of hit the you reset just, button. Hit reset on that. You, you look at the line of code, change the line of code, bang, straight there, well, again. Yeah, it's a bit slower than that. It, took a couple of minutes to compile and send it down again. It was pretty quick, um, whereas we heard other people which were, who were trying to actually program Spectrum using a Spectrum, and it was like, how do Why? you do that? That would be so hard. <laughs> because you've got to have your source code 
and the, the final code in memory at the same time. And what happens when it crashes and locks up? It's like, well, you just reload everything. That'll take ages. And they go, yeah, you just make sure you don't do it. You just like be really super careful. Well, we don't be careful. We just like just throw it down if it crashes. You and and the, really good, the really good news was, uh, one, we didn't pay for the Spectrum, which is really good, uh, but it took us about two weeks from getting that Spectrum to get the first game running, which was Ghost Hunters. It took about two weeks to write it, and we're straight to number one. It's not bad, is it? So we, <laughs> were, <laughs> we were just thinking, oh, this is brilliant. Um, <laughs> now, you could say that we slightly compromised things, and people did criticise us at the time, because they said, you put your... Um, Amstrad into the same mode, which was the same pixel resolution as the Spectrum, and obviously uh, it was capable of doing more. Um, I think actually we made this when we did Grand Prix Simulator, we put it into a full color mode, and then we couldn't do that on the Spectrum. And then we realized oh. <laughs> we realized we couldn't convert it to the Spectrum quite so easily. So, so somebody else got that so, job. So somebody else converted it, and we thought, oh, we really made a mistake. So, so from that day on. Like every game that we we did, we put it into the mode that on the Amstrad on the Amstrad that pretty much emulated the Spectrum. And it, then on the C sixty four, the people who were converting our games to the C sixty four put the C sixty four into a mode that emulated the Spectrum as well. <laughs> so, you, you never had to learn those little shortcut keys on the uh, the Spectrum keyboard. Then, do you know what? There's a funny story. Um, we we were best selling kind of authors on the Spectrum, and um, a friend of ours sort of said, "Oh, would you um, go around my sort of nephew's um, house and basically say hi?" He can't believe that I know the Oliver Twins and all this, and maybe sign a couple of cassettes for him. So anyway, we said, yeah, yeah, fine, we'll just nip round his house, it's not a problem, it wasn't that far away. So we drove round, and um, we're just chatting to him, and he was a bit sort of starstruck and all this, and then um, we go, so have you got any questions for us? And he goes, yeah, how do I get this word on the keyboard? Because there was, <laughs> you had to press control, shift, alt, <laughs> function this. And the, and the funny thing was, we didn't, we know. didn't know. And we were like, <laughs> I don't honestly know. And, and we were like there trying to go, well, is it that key and that key? And, and he was like, guys, you've written loads of games on the spectrum. How do you not know <laughs> how, how do you not know how the keyboard works? And it's like, because we use ZX, K and M, I think, up, up down, left, right. Um, <laughs> That's the ones we space use. Space bar or something for fire or jump. Um, and we were like, literally, we don't know how to type on this keyboard. And, and the funny thing is, I mean, <laughs> we've, we've been doing uh, research recently for this book that's being written, um, The Oliver Twins. Um, the book. Story of the Oliver Twins. The Story of the Oliver Twins. Yep. And we're doing lots of research, and I basically, I keep everything in my loft. The, the problem with keeping everything is actually then finding it, because it wasn't very well catalogued. But, but I have spent a lot of time um, cataloging actually everything. So we found everything, all source code to everything, all source notes and design documents, and every letter, every business card. We ran everything. Um, it's taken a while, and the the, um, the author who was actually writing the book, he just can't believe the ton of stuff that he got. Um, <laughs> so, so do you think being twins leads to kind of an advantage and being able oh, to remember yeah. this stuff and working together? We, we were competitive in like playing these early games, who can get the highest score and who can sort of get to the next level. And then we turned that into a, a slightly more constructive of like who could write code which the other one goes how the bloody hell did you do that and, and you can brainstorm a little bit um, as well and you're at exactly the same level so you've got this concept where um, you've got a challenge in front You sometimes you put the challenges in front of yourself I wonder if this is possible well the other per person who's alongside you knows why that's a challenge there's this whole concept that if a kid at home is writing something and says to his mum and dad look at this I've done something really clever they'll go oh yes love that's really nice that's wonderful that's uh they have no idea what the hell he's done. Yeah. <laughs> they don't know if it's clever. They're just trying to be sympathetic and, and supportive. And supportive. But they don't know. But we 
are exactly at the same level. We know the challenge, and the challenge is just beyond, because we haven't done it before, just <laughs> beyond us. We both understand, and one manages to do it before the other one. You go, oh, that is actually quite clever. So go on, how did you do it? And then when you do get stuck, obviously, you can talk, talk about it and explain, and go, well, I did it like this. And you go, oh, actually, that's pretty smart. Well, you mentioned your parents in there as well. I mean, um, I, I think, you know, my mum and dad, when I was a kid, I'd spend that much time in front of the computer. They'd be like, you know, trying to encourage me to go out and play sometimes. But what did, oh, your... we had all of that. Yeah, what yeah. did they think of your coding obsession then? Um, no, they, they absolutely thought we were obsessed um, with coding, which they thought was a bad thing. But on the other hand, the minute we started sort of making sort of some money and getting a bit of a name for ourselves, that was all kind of... They was all like, oh, actually, you're really good at this. Uh, yeah. That's fantastic. But, but before that, there was a little bit of scepticism. When we were about 14, 15, we won a TV competition. It was a national TV competition to design a game. And we won it partly because we actually wrote a game as opposed to design it. Everyone else sort of just designed on paper what would be a good idea for like a little arcade game. Which 99% of the time, those competitions, they just describe another game they've just played. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> we'd actually written a game. It wasn't a very good game, but we'd written it and we've won the competition. So... We at school were labelled as geeks and the people who knew how computers work. There was the air that computers are the future. There was a general... There was also the air that the, the computers are going to do everybody out of jobs, they're going to kill people, Terminator had just come out, obviously. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and generally, games were just a fad. And it, yeah. So our parents, I think, were really supportive in the fact that computers were the future and we were fascinated by them and we were getting them working. And, hey... They'll write a few games, they'll learn some things, and then they'll get proper jobs. Um, so I think there was a, a lot of that sort of thing that they kind of accepted that we were just oh. learning. They didn't actually think we'd write games for a living. I mean, no. That'd be crazy. Until you got to number one, and lots of checks came through, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, what happened? I mean, well, That changed people's opinions. <laughs> we finished our sixth form high school, um, and we were kind of like supposed to go off to university. But at that point... The only computers at universities were sort of database programming. Big and, mainframes. And no graphics. There was, yeah, literally no graphics. And, and it's, it's, they didn't have these home micro type things kind of at universities. That, that's just wrong. And so we couldn't find any courses that sort of taught what we wanted to go into because we, we went along to various interviews and things, of com computer programming courses, and they were like, oh, I don't, know, I don't want to do that stuff. That's really no, boring. No, don't you have any spectrums here? <laughs> <laughs> and um, you mentioned games. I mean, it was, an, uh, it was an abuse of computing power to use them for graphics and games. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's how everybody felt. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it did demean their power. Um, so, but it was actually our teacher who talked to our parents and saying, look, these guys really into these games. Why don't you let them just have a year out? Because... Like, get, get it out of their system. Yeah, that was it. It was get it out of their system. So, um, yeah, so so we had a year out. We were absolutely committed. And I think our dad sort of said, well, yeah, good luck, good luck, lads. And he was always very supportive, but thinking they'll realise that you can't yeah. actually make a living out of this. And, and he did actually say, which was really funny, he said, look, if you can make more than me as in a salary in a year... And he had a we'll pretty, say no more had, about it. Yeah, he had a pretty good job. He goes, well, then we'll say no more about it. <laughs> the challenge is on. Yes, we'll, you'll never need to go to university. So we never yeah. did. And we never did find out what that number was that we were looking for. But, but the fact that at the end of a year, yeah, we were pulling in the money then. So it was the September, which is the, the time that all of our friends had all gone off to their university courses. So all of our friends disappeared. And we were just stuck at home with our parents. So, but we were on this challenge of like you got to write some games so it was at the same time that we met the darlings who were just setting up co-masters 
and they said that they would pay £10,000 for a game, which we couldn't believe, because at that point we'd only ever got hundreds. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like 10000 So, and that's why we ran away and wrote Robin Hood in a month. And it was quite easy because we had no distractions. We didn't have school. That was a big distraction. And we didn't have friends. That was a big distraction. <laughs> um, and we lived at home. Yeah. Um, so we just spent literally every waking hour um, writing games. And you get that, that, that first game that you write, like seriously, went to number one. And it was like, oh my God. That worked. And everyone Let's just do said, that again. And everyone just said, well, that was a bit lucky. And it was like, well, hang on. So we had to prove it, that we could do it again. Well, being from Nottingham, I mean, uh, we love Robin Hood, obviously. Why did you choose the legend of Robin Hood oh, for your, for your right. game then? So, so the thing was that what we, what we kind of discovered was we had to get serious about making sure that we, we got some money in because our dad was going to throw us out to university if we weren't careful. So we were thinking, right, what, what can we write that will be very commercially successful? What is it that people are going to buy? So we were kind of studying the charts and looking at the start, charts and looking at the shops and going, what's selling, what's selling? And the big, big game at the time was Ghostbusters on the Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. And that was the number one, and it was go- it'd gone ballistic. Um, and we were like... Right. What we need is a name like that. Because it was a, a really, really popular name. Because people are buying this, not because of the gameplay. Because we looked at the game. Well, it's a bit game, rubbish. We thought the game looked pretty rubbish. Yeah. I, I know a lot of CC4 owners will actually argue oh with that. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but we thought it looked pretty rubbish. So, so looking at the charts, we could see there were various arcade conversions. That you'd all recognise. And then there was sort of the Xeviuses and a few sort of like really wacky um, mm. sort of made-up words mm. and stuff. And we were like... Well, what the hell is that? And you, you look down and go, what's that? What's that? And it's like, well, marketing, you, you must need marketing to market something that's like really obscure. Yeah. Or you buy a license to an arcade thing, which we're not going to do. We, we, we can't afford a license. We don't know how to buy a license. And then obviously the film license thing was just starting to take off. And we were like, well, we don't know anyone in Hollywood, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> so we were thinking, well, what you want to do is make sure that somebody knows what the game is well, and is there a license out there for free, yeah. basically? And we, we sort of had always joked about Disney always had licenses for free because they did Snow White and Cinderella and stuff. They never paid any money. And it's like they were big names before they started. So we just thought, well, we don't necessarily want to go down the fairy tale route. Um, we were just trying to think of other things. And we suddenly thought, Robin Hood, it's clear that you're a hero. Great. So you've got one obvious main character that's a hero. It's obvious the weapons he'll have because he'll use a bow and arrow. And it's obvious the locations you'll put him in. It's castles. And it's like, you can do that. And I reckon we got to re- rescue Maid Marian. Yeah. And you got, so you've got sort of, it ticks all the boxes. Everyone knows exactly what it is. Sounds kind of cool. Um, it's, it's achievable on the <laughs> spectrum stuff because you can draw sort of a side-on view of a castle with the various platforms and steps and uh, the turrets and... Uh, things and obvious enemies of guards and soldiers all over the place well a couple of years later obviously you did do um licensed games including uh, you mentioned ghostbusters there you did ghostbusters did, 2, did ghostbusters 2. Yeah, was, was that was exciting to work on like, <laughs> a few years later there was a film ghostbusters 2 and activision via an agent contacted us and said would you like to write the game it's like absolutely um, that's exactly what we'd like to write was so it exciting to work on that game then mm. slightly weird yeah you kind of uh, yeah uh, i was going to say that what is it? Um, if you get to know your heroes, it undoes the magic. It certainly does. Yeah. Yeah, we've worked for Disney quite a bit as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, you kind of have this better image um, from the outside. And the minute you see the inside, you go, it's just a mess. It's just a complete mess. How does this all work? So for a start, they sent us a script. Um, 
kind of didn't make a lot of sense because scripts have to be in plain font with no drawings and sketches and yeah, film scripts are really odd they only use typewriters to this day yeah we've still had like well up to a few years ago when we were still doing you get scripts for films and it's like they're just only one font is allowed <laughs> and they're not allowed to support properly describe scenes you can't add any graphics and all this and they're the, really odd so so you get that and that's a bit of a bit of a letdown so the script turns up and it's ghostbusters so you go, oh, oh and they go oh this is the most boring document i've ever seen but um, you read it and you get an idea and you kind of can yeah. you can make it up and go right well it's got all the main characters and actors and i can see how yeah. um it's all going to work so you set about and then you ask for lots of images and you get very very little comeback we got a few photos yeah there, there wasn't much at all um but then you sort of we we designed the game out with um force field with force field who were working on the st and amiga at yes that point, yes and the commodore 64 version and it was decided the first level would be based on this whole opening sequence of the film, which was going down into the sewers. Um, and it's quite a big scene, and it shows the first ghosts. Uh, and so we wrote the whole first level based on this synopsis of a big action-packed opening scene. And then it was decided in a late edit of the well, film. Well, I think we only learned we only learned when we actually saw the film ourselves. We went to the Empire um, Cinema in London, Leicester Square, for the, for the premiere. For the premiere. And it was like, the scene's they, they've knocked not the scene out. They've knocked the scene out. It was, kind of, it was <laughs> kind of there. But they had decided, whether it was a saving budget or whatever, to not really put this big ghost scenario in the opening sequence. Yeah. I mean... There was a time where, like, James Bond always starts with a massive opening sequence and then it slows down and then it builds up the pace over time. And that was generally the format. And we have gone, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then when you see the film, they had obviously decided somewhere down the lines to change that scenario. And so it made our first level really weird. And that's <laughs> happened in multiple games. Oh, it happened in all films. <laughs> so will you guys be watching the new Ghostbusters movie? Absolutely. Um, looking forward to it. I understand that... Um, it's on the YouTube... worst weighted trailer of all time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. No, but, but there's a funny thing there. I mean, the point is that if you take something that is so... Sacred and classic. Yeah, sacred and classic, that, that people almost... Nobody can do this film justice and all this. But look, it's entertainment at the end of the day. And actually, I think the fact that it's getting attention, even though it's negative, I think all those people will go and watch it. And we're going to go and watch it. And we're going to enjoy it. Yeah, um, I, I'm... I'm I, look, I watched a trailer. I thought it was pretty good. I think it will be fun enough to watch. I look back, because we all do, at our fond childhood times of seeing some of these classics. That's why you got a retro channel. And, <laughs> um, you sort of like... And you're thinking, oh, no, don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. It's like, look... Put the old film, that's a classic, it stands on its own. And, it, and it's new, saved, it's not like anybody's going to delete it. Yeah, <laughs> and you kind of like thinking, well, the new one will be entertaining. It, I think it's going to be very, very cringy, and I'll think, oh, gee, they could have done something a little bit better than that. But given that some of the actors are dead and stuff, it's like, look, things move on. It's, one. Okay. <laughs> um, it, it will be a unique offering. Um, with, It'll be fun. Yeah. Fun entertainment. I was going to say that. Uh, uh, so I've got um, three daughters, and I'm sure that if I showed them the the original Ghostbusters, in fact, they know the original Ghostbusters anyway. But if I showed them the original one and I showed the new one, they'll say, "Well, the new one's much better." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's that, because that's right for their generation. <laughs> Maybe you'll make the Ghostbusters three game. No. Well, we're not into uh, making uh, <laughs> games of films anymore, so we're yeah. just making a one big game. Yeah, you know what we're making? We're making Sky Saga, and that's that's pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. That's that's us. We'll do um, it the other way around. We'll make the film of the game rather than the game of the film. Yeah, in fact, um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, Hollywood will, will become knocking our, our, on our hey, door yeah. before, before too long, wanting to make the movie the. 
of the game. Yeah, so I mean, we've, that's, that's that's the ultimate goal, yeah, isn't well, it? Yeah, we've seen it. We've seen it happen with a few. Obviously, some have been a little bit of a disaster, like the Mario game. But uh, obviously, Angry Birds is just coming out. Although uh, I did see recently that they're just making a film of Tetris, and it's like. What? <laughs> Sorry. Well, it's like, we like Tetris and all, but... Well, one film we all want to see is the Dizzy film. <laughs> oh, don't even. <laughs> Can we uh, talk about your most famous franchise, Dizzy Egg? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It took quite a long time to get to that. <laughs> Considering, uh, I mean, obviously, we're very, very proud of it, and it's brilliant that everyone has very fond memories and is being remembered as, as such a classic. Although, to be fair... Perfectly honest, we did make quite a lot of them um, and did exploit it slightly. But that's because people kept wanting to buy them. People kept wanting to buy them. We were having fun making them. And we would have gone absolutely stir crazy if it hadn't been for the fact that we deliberately alternated. We didn't just like suddenly turn our lives into Dizzy. Um, we do one Dizzy game, then one something else. Then one Dizzy game, then one something else. Yeah, but we kept on going back to Dizzy going, well, because it's stories and it's in a fantasy world, you can keep on just making completely new stories. Whereas I've always thought that if someone's sort of making like a racing game or something, something he's or, like or where, football manager or football where, where do you take it yeah like fifa like come on now we don't change <laughs> like i know that you can change the colors of the strips and the names of the people but apart from that what do you bring new to each one that you do and the only thing they can bring new to it is a bit new tech to make it a bit smoother and stuff but even that is plateauing out now because the computers aren't changing that much um so there's certain things where you can't do much more with but but if you do something that's all fantasy and story driven then you can keep on bringing new and fresh things to it forever. So we were, were we were sort of really into sort of keep keep going with Dizzy, and it was very popular. Well, the main element that I liked in Dizzy was the kind of puzzling and the exploration in it uh, that many other platforms wouldn't have at the time. You know, having to yeah. open a door with a key and having to look so for was- certain items. Well, we'd, we'd um, started on um, some of these text adventures like, like Zork. Zork. Yeah. Um, and and I, I was a big fan of Monkey Island and uh, Leisure Suit Larry and a few things like that. Well, they came after Disney. Was it? I think it, it was about the same sort of time. But anyway, there were various adventures, whether they be text... I'm going to Google that. Okay. Well, okay. <laughs> Get <laughs> there the facts. Te- there were definitely text adventures. Okay, I'm not sure Monkey whether those point-and-click adventures were out. Yeah, um, we played we we played text adventures. Yeah, um, and then we played all the spectrum games, which were just sets of keys to open doors. And we were like, "Oh man, that's so bland." But the point is, it was kind of a gameplay that worked. But I know the memory is limited on a spectrum, but you don't have to have every graphic a key and every graphic a door. So effectively, Dizzy was just key and, and door. But we just made sure that keys weren't drawn as keys and doors weren't drawn as doors. And that became... You see, see, I was right, sorry. Monkey Island, power of the internet, um, released in 1990. Okay, and the that's, first Disney okay, okay. was in... Well, we developed in 86 and it came out in early 87. Okay, well, Monkey yeah. Island was a classic anyway. Um, it was. But there were, okay, so there were some adventure games that we've been playing that had really driven the story and the interesting ideas of... Of puzzles, and then there well, were, they were all text adventures. And then there were platform games, which were just key and door, and you had to find. And we just yeah. thought you need to mix these up a bit so that you got a story. Well, Dizzy, obviously, you know, to this day, still an icon for British gaming. I mean, how do you feel about creating a character with such mass global appeal? We're very proud of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's and it's very nice whenever anybody ever references and and talks about it. What was sad that it all came to an end. Um, that was all very sad. Yeah, a bit gutted about that. 
but that's just life. But you can read more about it in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I was going to ask what happened with Wonderland, Dizzy. Oh, that was interesting because as we fell out with Codemasters, there was obviously games in development. Um, that never got released. That never got released. And that, that was a Nintendo game. And Nintendo games had to be published on cartridges. So they were quite expensive. And there's the whole production of cartridges. And there was the whole legal issues surrounding the fact that Codemaster games were non-licensed and uh, Nintendo were taking them to court. So it, it didn't get released because of political issues and we kind of I, forgotten about we'd it. We'd just completely forgotten about it and it was only when we were um, at a retro fair and doing a talk on stage that I'd, I'd pulled out one of these props and it's like, oh, here's a map for a game called Wonderland Dizzy. Now, um, and I sort of like, well, that rings a bell, but did, did it ever get released? And I actually asked the audience, it's like, Guys, did that one get released? It's like, and so we ended up passing the map around the audience, and we we stepped off stage and said, "That's really weird, actually," because it's yeah. like, so it's like, well, what else is in the sort of boxes that you find with with that map? Um, and we, lo and behold, we sort of find some stuff that said Masters. Um, it's actually Source Code Masters, which is a bit of a git. Yeah, it was. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd been able to run it on an emulator. Um, so, so, we, so we had to find somebody that could actually recompile um, from Source Code. But there was a guy called Lukas Kerr in Poland um, who's on the Dizzy um, website, the yokefolk.com, that reckoned that if we gave him the Source Code, he'd be able to recompile it. Then they enabled us to sort of put it out there and share it with the world. And then he uh, put it through some sort of Java emulator so that it was just easy to play on a web page, which is quite nice. So do you feel guilty at all if you uh, drop an egg? Or... Kind of never occurred to us, you know. No. <laughs> and, and you may have heard the story that it wasn't originally designed as an egg. It was originally designed as a big face. Sprites have a limited size, and, and it was something like 24 pixels high by 28 or 30 pixels high. 32, I imagine. And that was a... Yeah, probably. <laughs> But that was about the only size sprite we could move around the screen. One, because of the speed of plotting pixels, but two, because you need the rest of the screen space to be able to see and navigate. So it was a case of drawing a big face and then go, oh, I've used all the pixel space. I've got no space left. Uh, if I make it a little bit smaller and just round off the edges, I can just about put some feet on the bottom of this and put some arms out the side. Well, okay, I can't put some arms. I'll put some hands instead. Well, I can't see fingers. We'll call them gloves. And that's how that's how the character was developed. Is everybody else kind of said it's kind of an egg? It's like and it's like yeah, yeah. And we sort like. of, yeah. <laughs> that's why we sort of get, went with it, and then that really took off. I mean, one of the things that really helped us, and it's a funny thing, and that is the fact that every oh god, what's the descriptive word um, adjective that you could use? Um, Superlative. Superb. Is um, is a positive. So when people were trying to make jokes in reviews and magazines... Go, it's excellent! Yeah. It's exciting! <laughs> yeah, every sort of eggs that you can think is... is a positive a, word. Is a positive word. And, and reviewers always wanted to make funny jokes. And it's like, yeah, off you go then, because you'll only be you'll only be complimenting the game. Yeah, you can't think of any that sound negative. And again, uh, that's a very British thing, isn't it, doing that, that play on yes. words? Yeah, absolutely. Well, but it was a complete accident. I mean, mm. we just got lucky. There was one of your games, um, Fruit Machine Simulator, that had quite a tragic story behind that game. Um, what happened with it? Well, what, what actually happened there was that um, Codemasters had quite a lot of um, simulator games, and they were all um, quite popular, and obviously we did quite a few of them. The artist, um, Jim Wilson, who was actually doing loading screens for us, a so Grand Prix Simulator screen and, and a few others, 
He was a frustrated game designer. He was. So, so he decided to do a full game design of a fruit machine as a simulator game, which we thought was a bit strange. But anyway, what he was other... really into fruit machines. He wanted to design a game. And he goes, I'm going to design the ultimate fruit machine. Yeah. So um, we, we're just fine. And, and we, we, we could see what he was doing. I mean, we visited Codemasters sort of once a month or something. We could see what he was doing. And whenever he fine. didn't have work, he'd be doing yeah. bits and pieces of, of this, this design. So anyway, one of the programmers, the guy, Mark Waldock, who actually wrote the Spectrum Robin Hood, after finishing Robin Hood, That's he what... decided to write the fruit machine that uh, on the Spectrum that Jim Wilson had done. Um, Jim was a really, really friendly guy. Um, I think he was 19. And just as the game was being released, I'm not even sure he saw it released. Um, they were having a big party. It was, uh, it was about Christmas time. And they were down um, on the south coast. Um, Lime Regis. Lime Regis. And they were drinking heavily. Um, and unfortunately, at two o'clock in the morning or something, he actually fell off the pier wall into the sea. Um, it's a harbour wall, but in harbour Lime, Lime Regis, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and every, everyone was too drunk to save him, and he was too drunk to get to the beach. Yeah. So unfortunately, he died, which is incredibly sad, and we just couldn't believe it, and we were devastated. But we decided that um, we'd actually we weren't terribly impressed with how it was going on the spectrum, and we decided that we'd write the Amstrad one, and we'd make the best we could of this design that he'd sort of... And then do a dedication forward. to him and sort of give the royalties to his family. Nice legacy for him, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it was a very, very sad. I mean, he was right at the start of his life and he was a life and soul of the party. Really, really nice guy. Talented artist. The most horrific funeral we've ever been to. You oh, go to a funeral Lord. of a 19-year-old. Mm. All school friends and everyone, and everyone was just just yeah. crying the entire time. And it was like, oh, good grief. Whereas you go to funerals usually of old people and everyone's going, well, they had a good innings. Mm -hmm. And, oh, it's nice to see you. I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, it's nice to have these family get-togethers. But he suddenly, and like, no, it, wasn't, was it wasn't family, but it was just it everyone. Was dreadful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was horrible. Well, obviously, after the 8-bit uh, the platforms, you guys moved on to uh, working on the Amiga and the Atari ST. What did you think of those machines? Yeah. The only reason we had an Amiga was because of D-Paint. Um, we needed D-Paint to draw graphics for the NES because um, we decided that we were a bit late to the market on the ST and Amiga. Uh, it was just a piracy thing. Everyone who had an ST and Amiga, <laughs> come around, I've got like this whole rack of discs with games on. It was just like the biggest piracy racket ever. And we were like, how the hell do you ever sell a game on the ST and Amiga? Mm -hmm. It's like, we weren't very good at graphics, um, because we didn't really have an artist at that point. Uh, I mean, it says art was done in our games, but that generally... And they were in the loading screens. They were the loading screens. It's like, oh my well, God, the games on the ST and Amiga actually have proper graphics in-game. Yeah. Um, all the graphics in all our 8-bit games are me and Andrew drawing them, and we don't consider ourselves artists. But we'd made the jump to console, and that seemed to be where the consumers were all buying consoles. So we sort of jumped onto the Sega. Yeah, so, so, we'd gone to, um, so we'd gone through the NES, then the Master System, the Game Gear, Game Boy, and then up to the Mega Drive and Genesis, mm. um, and then on to the PlayStation after that. Um, so actually, we skipped, um, we skipped the whole ST and Amiga. We only used Amigas for D-Paint and drawing, drawing some graphics for all of our NES games. But you did mention in there as well about the uh, PlayStation. I know you guys were kind of um, early advocates of the PlayStation. Were a lot of people well, sceptical back then? So well, what actually happened was that um, we just sort of fallen out with Codemasters. We produced some Mega Drive games or Genesis games. Um, and we now had to look for sort of money from elsewhere and look for publishers elsewhere. And although we kind of could compete on the, on the Mega Drive, 
we, we'd seen the fact that cartridges were very expensive and there were lots of issues and lots of problems with them. We'd pr we also suspected that Sega probably weren't too keen about us because... We'd been famously sort of doing games without their permission almost. Um, via Game Masters. Yeah. Um, so we kind of thought, well... We slightly queered our pitch with Nintendo and Sega. It yeah. felt... We felt we might have done. We weren't sure. Um, so we just thought, well, Sony has announced this new machine. Let's, let's kind of investigate this. And what, the minute we started investigating, it was like, oh my lord, it's brilliant! Look at the look at the fact that you can save things onto disc. Look how fast they load. Look at this 3D chip and everything. This is amazing. We were just we were just um, astounded by the sort of the technical advancement. Um, and I remember going down to a secret meeting which Phil Harrison um, ran. Um, was it Phil Harrison by yeah, then? Yeah, it was Phil Harrison. Yeah, Signosis, because he was one of the key people at Signosis. They bought Signosis yeah. because they were the sort of leading ST Amiga, and they wanted a sort of a software developer which was on the cutting edge. And so they bought Signosis to turn it into this sort of Sony wing. And at that point, um, Phil Harrison was the main sort of dev director or something of Signosis. Um, so he held a secret meeting. There was about 10 different developers there. And um, they showed us this this demo, and it was Wipeout, which was looking pretty damn nice, um, and this dinosaur. But yeah, so Jurassic Park had just come out in the cinemas, and they just showed this 3D dinosaur, and it was just like, I've never seen anything like that. That's absolutely incredible. So we got a very early PlayStation, which looked like a dev big... kit. Yeah, the dev kit looked like a huge photocopying machine. It was <laughs> massive, way bigger than a PC box. And we put some demos together and we went and met some publishers. And it was incredible to sort of walk into like a claim or somewhere and say, yep, we, we're writing PlayStation because that's the new computer. And they were like, no, not no, interested. Not interested. <laughs> How on earth does a sort of TV manufacturer think that it's going to compete with Sega and Nintendo? Wow. Like they know games. Like Sony might be able to produce electronics, but it's never made a console. Um, it's going to fail. And and, and we, they always they always cited be, um, the Betamax. The Betamax. Yeah, because they said look, they said Betamax was very cool. They said every tech person understands that Betamax is obviously superior, but it failed. And they said so even if you have the argument that the PlayStation is better than the Sega, of, we would have been Nintendo. Mega Drive and Super NES at that point. They said it's irrelevant because. It's like it's about the brand and the gamers all respect Nintendo and Sega. Sega. So they just wouldn't back it. And in fact, that was actually the downfall of Acclaim because Acclaim never, ever went to um, PlayStation. But the other ones were pretty damn sceptical and going, nah, don't really like it. So we backed it 100%. Well, you guys have got such a rich history in this industry and so many great stories to tell. And in fact, um, you've actually got a book coming out about your, uh, your tales then. Tell us a bit more about this book. We do. Um, so um, this was a Kickstarter campaign by um, Chris Wilkins and Roger Keane, um, who have done lots of books, uh, retro books, about the industry, the UK industry predominantly, um, covering the Spectrum in Pixels and Commodore 64 in Pixels. And they've done the story of Ocean, the story of US Gold. And we've obviously, because of we are kind of part of the fabric of the UK games industry, we kept being asked to do odd pages. To do pages for these things. And pretty much every single one of those books, have, we've got some, some entries in there. And we were signing some, some of the books for the guy one time. And he came around the office because he actually lives relatively close. Came around the office and whilst we were signing all this stuff, just chatting. Uh, we were just chatting and um, sort of made a joke about, oh, one day somebody write a book about us. And he goes, oh, really? <laughs> and he goes, I could do that. And we're like, would you? And it's like, yeah. And we're like, actually, seriously. 
would you? <laughs> so, um, and he goes, yeah, why not? And uh, we were thinking, actually, we've got an awful lot of games and an awful lot of stories. And it was kind of, we said, what we'll do is we'll set out to sort of try and paint a picture of the the, the industry as it was kind of in the 80s, that whole back bedroom thing, because it is something that a lot of people who played all those games and got into those early 80s games go, so what was it like being on the other side, like on the dev side? Because you hear all the sort of weird, funny, wacky stories, and it's like, well, we're going to write what it was like from our perspective, like the, which is pretty much like kids at school, like trying desperately hard and failing really badly to finding the like the darlings at Codemasters like day one and then going through quite a sort of rock and roll-y type of experience for a few and years. And then a bit of a roller coaster. Well, uh, Philip and Andrew, it's been amazing getting your stories and talking to you guys. We really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, we'll look forward to reading the book. One final question I've got to ask. Will we ever get a new Dizzy game? Wow. Hmm. I don't know. Um, never say never. I mean, it, it's really nice that people fondly remember it. What I would say is that... Will we find another game or will we make another game? They're two different questions. Exactly, because ah. who, who, who knows there might be another one. I mean, the funny thing is that I do keep absolutely everything. Um, and we have had to do a lot of archive digging recently. Mm. So, so that's one thing. But the other thing I would also say is that we can never really compete. And in fact, we're going to make sure that nobody else can either with, with Sky Saga. I mean, all of our sort of new creative energies and the massive team that we have here at Radiant Worlds, we just want to make Sky Saga the biggest and best game ever. And, and it's this huge fantasy game in this fantasy world which gives you lots of quests and yeah. it's, it's mm. like, <laughs> it's something that might be familiar with people that people might like. <laughs>